It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's another day in the maelstrom of COVID lockdown as we bask in the glory of having vaccinated nearly everyone over 50. But hold on a minute. Is that cloud on the horizon that I see? Is that a setback that I see hanging around over the Department of Health? Yesterday, Matt Hancock puffed himself up to his full state of pomposity and practically declared victory in the war against the virus, only to be dragged down by the BBC and various other media outlets over a warning about a vaccine shortage. By the end of the briefing, I was left completely baffled as to whether people under 50 were going to get the jab before the end of April or not, right? It turns out they aren't. It turns out the experts have decided it's more important to give out second vaccines to the 25 million people who've already had one. Which leaves me to conclude one thing, and one thing only. And I want you to listen carefully to this. The government and its medical advisers, that's those people from SAGE, apparently don't think it's dangerous for people under 50 not to be vaccinated as a matter of priority. They obviously don't think there's much risk of them being seriously ill as a result of getting COVID. So here's the question. Why the heck can't they go out? Why can't they mingle? Why can't they socialise? Why can't they have dinner together in a restaurant? Answers, please, on a postcard. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll be talking to our favourite statistician, Jamie Jenkins, over in Wales with his take on the figures uh, and what they all mean. Plus, we'll be looking at the new asylum seeker policy of sending illegal migrants to Gibraltar or the Isle of Man as some kind of deterrent. I'm not sure sending them to Gibraltar is much of a deterrent. If you know you're going to end up there, I might get in a dinghy myself because I quite fancy a bit of a holiday in the sun. What do you think? Helen Dale will be giving us her view, of course, on the police and crime bill and whether the government should have done more to protect women specifically. Um, and also, uh, we will be talking to Christine Jardin from the Lib Dems because she is very much in favour uh, of making misogyny a hate crime. I'm not sure that's the way to go. We'll be talking about that as well. 0344-499-1000. For a bit of light relief, we're joined by Quentin Letts, political sketchwriter from The Times, with his new book, Stop Bloody Bossing Me About, which I think is a great title. It's a great book, very much uh, in line with the thinking here at Talk Radio and the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I think you're going to like it as well. Lenora Harvey's also here with an update from California and what's happening in the US of A. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And let us welcome our first guest, Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics. Jamie, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. I was slightly puzzled by the briefing yesterday. I don't know whether you managed to see it live, but Matt Hancock sort of came out all guns blazing, basically saying, you know, we're winning the war. It's all great. We've got some very good news for you. And then the first question from Laura Kunzberg was all about this letter that he didn't seem to know anything about, saying that they're not going to be able to roll out the vaccine at the same speed uh, as they would normally do in April because there's some kind of shortage of supply. And I'm still not really sure what the truth is, to be honest. Well, I think with a vaccine, Mike, we're probably best starting off that we're in a much better place than I think people thought we would have been. Well, in December, we didn't even have a vaccine approved. We've got mm. multiple vaccines now. The rollout's been quite remarkable to the fact now that we've got 25 million people vaccinated with the first dose. Some have had the second dose. And the, the data now, Mike, is clearly showing the effect of the vaccine. We're seeing deaths in the UK starting to return to normal levels. In some parts of England, they're actually below normal levels for the time of year. Mm. Um, evidence came up from Scotland last week as well, Mike, where we know that this we thought the vaccine would reduce serious illness, but we've seen some evidence coming out from Public Health Scotland that it's actually reducing transmission as well. So, so it's probably, I've seen no evidence that the vaccine has been combated and outfought by new variants. I don't see any evidence of that going on at the moment as well. So I think uh, the point around the, the kind of the age, remember that 83% of all the deaths have been for people over the age of 70. Right. Majority of those have had the vaccine. Uh, just 2% of all the deaths where COVID was mentioned on the death certificate was for people under the age of 50. But remember, some of those 
will have many health conditions as mm. well as just a, a thing as well. So, so good news, Mike. And and I think the data today is you know sunny day out there. That the data is clearly showing that there's no justification for the current restrictions. There's been you know times over the last year where decisive action's been needed, but at the moment, Mike, the, the data is clearly not showing that that the, the no. measures are. In- and and for those people who continually moan and groan about how we must be careful about lifting the uh, the lockdown restrictions, I mean, we are in a very different place, as you say, because of the vaccine, because of the fact that so many people have now been given the vaccine. Other people who have had the disease are less likely to get it again. And it seems to me that if the government's now saying if you're under fifty, you don't really need to be prioritised for the vaccine, then people who are under 50 who are otherwise healthy haven't really got much to worry about have they well i i don't think so mike you know there are some people who will be under the age of 50 who may have probably already had the vaccine anyway because remember it's not just people under the age of 50 not getting it. if you're in one of the vulnerable groups mm. you would have been in priority groups anyway so so the most vulnerable under 50 should be in those priority groups and getting it in wales at the moment mike there's fewer people being admitted to hospital now than at the lowest point of last summer where COVID was very mm. rare, much around mm. similar situation in England. Now, the number of people who say dying has gone back, COVID rates have come right down. And, um, and in Wales, the data metrics would put us uh, into what we've, we've got these different tiers in Wales. For some reason in Wales, we have different rules to England, you know, and one of my big bugbears since the start of the pandemic. And and we're in what we would call alert level four up until last Friday. And then Mark Drakeford announced some easing of restrictions mm. to probably alert level four minus. But all the data would put us at alert level two and alert level one by the Welsh government's own mm. guidelines. And what that means, Mike, is that in Wales now, and, and it's a similar situation in England and Scotland as well, the hospitality would be open, gyms would be open, you could travel freely to beauty spots, outdoor sport for children, leisure centres. I was talking to a swimming coach yesterday. You know, all these children that uh, can't go to swimming lessons, for example, you know, if, for elite athletes for swimming, young children, all that's been closed, all the development for them. They would all be open based on the data, not just today, Mike, but mm. on the data about three weeks ago as well. But the, the next review is another three weeks. So I think we're now starting to see that the data is not definitely not driving the decision making, Mike. No, it really isn't. And they did say that the data would drive the decision making. But Mark Drakeford, of course, who's not exactly been, uh, shall we say, forward uh, about lifting lockdown restrictions. In fact, he's probably been one of the more draconian uh, leaders in the entire nation uh, of the United Kingdom. But I mean, surprisingly, I thought, though, at least he, he allowed people to get their hair cut the other day. Well, you, you can get your hair cut. Obviously, I, I don't need... Uh, I didn't want to say anything about that, but, but, but while you're on the no. subject, yeah, you don't look as if you need one, I must say. <laughs> no, I, obviously, I don't benefit from that one. But yeah, I, I coach the under seven uh, football team in, in in South Wales, near where I live, and, yeah. and they can't go out and play football. Now, the local hospital where I live, Mike, uh, during the, the height of the pandemic, we had a lot of outbreaks within the hospital, and sadly, that led to a number of deaths. Now, they issued a statement this week to say that there are no active COVID patients in that hospital at the moment. Mm. Literally none, not one patient in the hospital, which is great news, remarkable. But yet, um, you can't go very far from the house at the moment. We've got to stay local message. Children can't play sports. All the children I coach, Mike, they've just been kind of left by the sidelines mm. over the last uh, several months. And and to be honest, because of the abuse of other data has been misrepresented now and is being misused, I've actually taken a stand now, and I'm going to stand in the upcoming elections for the the Welsh Parliament. Good and my, for you. My re- yeah, my reasons are simple, Mike. We're clearly not following the data now. Business owners spent vast sums of money making their premises COVID secure, and now they're kind of being betrayed. Thousands of children are still not in school in Wales, despite the the low levels of COVID, missing out on sport generation uh, development. So every day, the next generation are losing out. My key issue, Mike, now is that data should be driving decision making in a democracy and it's just clearly not yeah because i mean when it was in the opposite direction when things were getting more serious they were changing their rules and regulations literally by the day whereas now all they're doing is hiding behind the previous set of of circumstances that they set out you know beginning of january i mean julie hartley brewer mentioned it this morning we are still in the same state of lockdown in this country that we were on the 5th of january you know, when times were very, very hard, when we had more people going into hospital than ever before, when more and more people were dying and the graph was still going up. But now it's not. Why are we still here? Well, the restrictions that they kind of came up with, Mike, came in before the, the vaccine was announced as well, mm. uh, because they were kind of determined back in, in December. So we never had a vaccine approved at that point. So so you, one would argue that the role of the vaccine and the reduction in the deaths and the infection rates, etc., would mean that 
what you would have then is a speed up of the reduction of the restrictions kind of coming out of them. But what we're seeing is it's actually going in reverse. It's like practically on, on a snail pace, which, you know, some people might will appreciate that. They'll want some caution, but the data is clearly not showing that at the moment. And, and where I live in, in South Wales, Mike, we've got some of the highest death rates, if not the highest in from COVID in the country. Mm. And what, uh, you know, I've been trying to put the, the data out impartially across the, the last year. I've had Welsh ministers attacking me on Twitter by showing the facts, et cetera, about what's going on. And we've got one of the highest death rates. And, and one of the things yeah. they talk about. Well, well didn't Pontypridd become, become the most infected place in the world um, about a week or two after they locked it down? Yeah, it's, you know, Pontypridd just up the road from me. And we've seen some, you know, really high cases, one of the highest death rates in the world. And one of the things that's now talked about is the fact that you've basically got, you know, poverty and health inequalities and all this is a, is a key factor. Mm. And that's true. But and you can't fix that overnight, Mike. But where I live in the South Wales Valley, I grew up on a council estate. So, you know, I come from kind of a poor background and, and try to work my way up in my life. Yeah. And, thing is you, you don't fix these things overnight poverty and wealth but you take that for example the, the labor ministers in wales now are talking about poverty and, and wealth and all that kind of stuff and health as a key factor in the covid but they've kind of been running the country for the last 20 well, years the trouble. i mean i did a lot of work in wales back in the sort of uh, end of the last uh, the, the last century i know it sounds old now but back in you know the days when devolution just started so you know the welsh assembly's been there for 20 years now um and they have done absolutely nothing to, to resolve the issues in the valleys. They've done nothing to resolve the issues in parts of West Wales, where there's an awful lot of poverty as well, North Wales too. You know, these people haven't been doing their jobs. They've been taking money. And I'm really glad that people like yourself, Jeremy, are now entering the political fray, because I think that's what we need. We need ordinary people like yourself who haven't come from a privileged background, who know what it's like um, in, the, in, the, in the sort of inner city areas of, of South Wales and the poor areas of South Wales. And, and I can hope that, uh, that you can get enough, uh, uh, enough votes to get yourself in. What's your plan? Are you playing... Uh, on, on as an independent, what are you, what are you going to be doing? So uh, I, I I put a couple of tweets out just kind of showing my frustration of terms of how things are going. And a couple of parties got in, in touch with me. So I'm actually going to stand for the Reform Party okay. in South Wales, Mike. And just because obviously I think what we need to do is reform politics in Wales. We need to reform kind of the power balance within Wales. Because you're right, we've had billions of pounds spent on the Welsh Valleys. And and I go cycling a lot, Mark. I lead a cycling group and then volunteer to get, you know, some elderly people out cycling and stuff. And, and the good thing with a lot of the money that's been spent is it's kind of, we had a lot of old railway lines in South Wales and a lot of the money that's come into Wales is tarmac them all. So we've got some really lovely cycling routes. But what some people would criticise the way the money has been spent, though, in South Wales over the last 20 or five years, Mike, is that we've refurbished the valleys, but we haven't reformed the valleys. We still haven't got... You know the jobs that are coming in etc so so the, one of the key things i hope that what we can do over the next 25 years is one of the things the covid pandemic has done mike is that we can probably start seeing that people don't need to work in the office five days a week so maybe rather than taking jobs direct to people people can work in some of these areas and not have to travel in so so maybe we can start revitalizing you know the welsh valleys utilizing the lessons that we've learned from kind of covid mm, absolutely right and as far as the whole campaigning uh, scenario is i mean it's difficult at the moment to know exactly what you're allowed to go out and do as far as knocking on people's doors and things like that but you'd like to think that by sort of the end of april you'll be able to do that wouldn't you yeah, so at the moment you can't do any canvassing and, and one of the actual uh, assembly members at the moment um, in, in one of the Cardiff seats in South Wales, uh, he's had the police turn up at his door just for delivering leaflets. Really? Uh, and, uh, which I is, mean, which that's the other thing I think that we need to get a grip of in this country is the way that the police services are being run either by local politicians like Sadiq Khan in London uh, or by Metropolitan Police Chiefs like Cressida Dick. You know, they are clearly getting it wrong. And I know they've got a difficult job and everybody tells me that, you know, it's tough to be a cop at the moment because they're having to carry out, uh, you know, and enforce laws which don't make any sense. But they don't have to actually do it the way they're doing it, do they? Well, we saw that um, in, in kind of in England, didn't we, where fines were being issued and then the police had to kind of backtrack. I have a lot of sympathy with the police, Mike, with regards to this kind of COVID pandemic in that they kind of been told that well you've got to follow the guidance then there's some police who are a bit confused is it guidance or is it law mm. and and then some people from the public you know i was talking to a policeman and um just on the road from me who he said it's difficult for us because we get the public phoning us up saying oh people are driving to this beauty spot come and sort them out and then but they turn up and then people are just going there for kind of exercise etc and i think it's kind of 
it's the mixed messaging mm. that we've been getting kind of from ministers. The thing Matt Hancock said yesterday is fine to go to the park to play football, but well, what if you live in a high rise block of flats and, and the local parks a few miles away? Yeah, but he also said, I mean, this is, but he's also, he's a great example, Hancock, isn't he, of, of giving out the wrong message because he said quite openly, oh, it's all right to go and play football in a park. And then he added, if you're part of the same family. But I don't know that many families that have got enough people in them to play five-a-side football, 10 of them, you know, five against five. I really don't think that's happening very much. So, I mean, it shows you how out of touch people like him are, where he thinks that that's what's going on. People who are playing football in a park, and I'm not saying they shouldn't do it, um, are probably breaking some COVID rule, aren't they? Well, yeah, Mike, that's true. I took my two children to a little game of football last week, but it's far more fun, obviously, when there's more than uh, than two children yeah. playing. And you're right, and, and there's no real evidence, Mike, that... Um, the transmission of COVID happens outdoors. I've seen you, you know, having some great times on the beach yeah. over the last... Uh, well, this weekend. is what I mean. When I was at the beach, I mean, the last two weekends, and I was reporting into talk radio, there's loads of people there, right? So I'm allowed to go to a, to a beach situation where, where lots of people are there that I don't know, but I'm not allowed to go there with anyone that I do know. You know, it's com- completely and utterly bonkers, isn't it? No, there are some bonkers rules that are going on, Mike. For example, we've got this stay local uh, in Wales where... It's five miles is what some people are saying. It's a bit more if you live in like rural areas right. and five miles, very, very far. But so five miles, I, I think the local beach for me is just over six miles away. So so technically, if I go to the beach, I'll be breaking the COVID rules. That's but crazy, I can go to a park down the road. And if everybody's in the same situation, you've got loads of people crammed into a small park and a massive beach where you can't go to. Mm. And, and then it's difficult going back to the police point then. How do the police kind of enforce what's a stay local rule? And right. I think... And presumably the police have to travel further away than five miles to find people at the beach to arrest them. Yeah, and and if you bring it back to the rules, Mike, where we currently are today, as I've talked about is there's no real justification because the the case rates have come down dramatically. You know, we've had tragic deaths over the last year. You know, we've sympathy for all the families. I've been covering the data daily for the last year. And but as you said, Mike, we went into a lockdown rather quickly. Possibly we needed some form of restrictions because there was perhaps pressure on the NHS. But just look at the date this morning in, in England. Uh, the number of patients in hospital has fallen 90%. Yeah. And intensive care patients has fallen 80%. So there's no pressure coming on the NHS and it's only going to continue to fall, Mike. So so the question for me, for kind of the ministers is, what data are you, you know, currently using to justify the current restrictions that's obviously affecting the economy? Well, one of the things you never hear them saying anymore is what the R rate is, you know, because the R rate is clearly less than one and there's been less than one for now quite some considerable period of time, meaning that nobody is uh, actually becoming infected effectively. No, so the R rate's definitely uh, less than one. If you look at all the metrics, Mike, and I, I, I'll put a map up on my Twitter profile later, most of the country would be green with regards to what the COVID levels are. There are still some pockets that are, are, are kind of pop up in Anglesey in North Wales at the moment. We've got a bit of an outbreak there. But I think that's been linked to hospital transmission again and, and an outbreak within the hospital. Mm. And then there's talk of closing the schools in Anglesey with regards to that. But I think what we've got to remember now, Mike, we're at that point of the pandemic where the number of cases is going to become less relevant in terms of how we manage it because we're in a pandemic or we've been kind of out coming up the back end of it. People will still catch the virus, but the vaccine will mean that they won't get seriously ill and end up in hospital. So so we need to really shift the focus now on yes. how many people are in hospital rather than how many people are going to have the virus because obviously you don't test people for the flu, every, you know, everybody for the flu over the winter no. because they've been vaccinated so they wouldn't end up in hospital. That's got to be the focus now, not how many cases there are. And, and I'd be really, well, I'd be frustrated, Mike, if children go back to school and there's a few cases and they close the school. I know. Because well, we've heard that... of a couple of those cases already. And the fact that they're testing all the school children and they're still testing in the hospitals, you know, there's never going to be a zero rate of positive cases because there's always going to be people testing positive. It's as simple as that. Yeah, no, Mike, you, you bang on. We, you know, we're not going to get to zero COVID. You know, what I've been saying is that we've got to learn to live with this kind of virus. Now, it's, it's, it's here forever now. It's not going to go away. Mm. But we need to manage it like the flu. Now, we've backed we back the horse. So the vaccine is the horse that we've backed. We put all our money behind the vault, that, that, you know, for the Cheltenham Festival this week. That's what all our money's gone on on the horse there, the vaccine. And if we think that that vaccine is the hope and will offer, and the data is clearly showing that now, Mike, then there's no real justification for continuing all the restrictions when all of the kind of the vaccine effect is starting to come through. And say it's a sunny day out there now. We're starting to get the lighter evenings. People now for their own mental health start to need to have that hope 
start going back to their daily lives, mm. I think, Mike. Absolutely right. Jamie, listen, good luck with your uh, electoral campaign. Uh, we may speak to you again, but of course, we're going to hit an electoral period pretty soon. So we won't be able to uh, endorse you or give anybody the idea that they should vote for you. But good luck with it all. Jamie Jenkins, there, a former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics, now candidate for the Reform Party uh, in South Wales for the Welsh Assembly uh, elections coming up uh, in May, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. One of the big uh, stories of the week has been the treatment of women, uh, the resulting sort of legislation which is coming through the Police and Crime Bill, which Helen Dale will be talking to us about in a short while uh, in the next hour as far as the way that uh, women are asking for more protection from the law in the wake of the terrible uh, murder that we saw, of course, taking place. So there's an inquest going on uh, even as we speak today into Sarah Everard's death. Um, There's somebody who's been charged with her murder, uh, so we can't say too much about that. But ministers uh, yesterday sort of caved in to an awful lot of pressure from an awful lot of um, women MPs and women in the House of Lords, basically telling the police to treat misogyny as a hate crime. We're going to be speaking to Christine Jardin from the Lib Dems shortly. Claire Fox, uh, a woman that we speak to here on this show on quite a regular basis, uh, said this yesterday on Twitter, um, attempting to use domestic abuse bill as a vehicle for counting misogyny hate in all crimes with a complication on gender and sex abandoned yesterday as the Conservative government promised Labour um, that a pilot rolled out nationally in Nottingham uh, shouldn't happen. My opposition stands you can be labelled misogynist based on perception. Well, that's entirely how uh, it will be uh, delivered because the way that apparently um, misogyny will be judged by the uh, police is whether or not the victim believes or perceives that the crime was motivated, motivated by hostility based on their sex. And I can see all kinds of problems with this um, because at the end of the day, anything which the police can do which is based on a perception from somebody else is surely the wrong way to go about the law and the carrying out of that law um, and the rolling out of that law. Because the whole point about the law is that you should be able to know when a law is being broken. You should be able to know what the law actually states and where the law actually is. Let's talk to Christine Jardin now uh, and find out what she makes of it all. Christine, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed. I know you were having a few problems with us. I don't know if you heard what, what I was saying. But my, my slight issue with this um, is that mm-hmm. I'm not entirely certain how easy it's going to be for either the police or indeed the judiciary to work out where the lines are. Well, that's the whole point of this amendment is to is to to help them to do that. And a lot of police forces across England have already been um, collating um, figures and looking, you know, um, if you like, recording crime um, by sex, if you like. And I think that's what we have to do. Misogyny, yes, is I appreciate what you're saying. It's difficult to define, but. We have to appreciate in this country, I think, that we have a problem still, a serious problem. And we saw um, over the past week just how how seriously people, women especially, feel about the, the violence that we, we face in this country regularly. And the importance of this is that it will move us towards making, if the government accepts it when it comes back to the Commons, misogyny, hate crime. Um, because we have to do something. The figures are just frightening. And during the pandemic, it's been worse. So I, I, it's not going to be, you know, I appreciate that people will think it's difficult. Um, some people will not like it. But I think we have to just grasp the bull by the horns and do something. No, I accept that. But I mean, doing something is often sometimes the wrong thing, because when you get to the point where you think we must do something based on figures, which are slightly iffy, in my view, I was reading a piece this morning in The Times uh, by Joanne Williams, who's basically talking about this 97% figure that we keep hearing about that UN women found in a study. The problem with that study is that they asked women what happened to them. um, And it ranged from sexual harassment to feeling uncomfortable. Now, you know, I'm by no means defending uh, misogyny and I'm certainly not defending the sexual no. harassment of women. Obviously, no. I've got a daughter, I've got a mother, I've got a sister, you know, I've got female mm-hmm. friends, none of whom I would wish to see suffering in any way, shape or form. But when you get people quoting figures at you, which we do an awful lot now about almost everything, mm-hmm. you've got to be careful that, you know, it's not really 97% of people who have been sexually harassed. And that's what the study is purporting to say. Well, I, I don't actually agree with you there, Mike, because I, I, you know, I'm probably one of those 97%. And there what, is... What, 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 somebody made you feel uncomfortable or you were sexually harassed? 
Oh, actually, a, a lot of things um, oh, when I was younger. All of the above. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when I when I was when I was uh, when I was much younger, when I was a young woman, I it was it was everywhere, mm. and it ranges from you know cat calls in the street to people making inappropriate advances to being made to feel uncomfortable yeah. in your workplace or a social setting or whatever, and it all boils down to an attitude in society that we have to change that it's somehow acceptable for women some people seem to think it's acceptable for women to have to go through that and it's not just some women it is all women we all feel it at some point in our lives the 97 percent didn't surprise me at all because mm. i don't know a woman who hasn't been put in that one of those situations at least um and as i say many of us i you know i i regard myself as, for, as fortunate that the sort of the you know harassment that I have experienced has been at what you might think was the the, the milder or the less serious end of the scale. Mm. I have never faced a serious sexual um, assault or harassment situation, but that's not good enough. It's no, I get that. that. I get that. It's just an attitude, but and like, that's what we have to. Yes, to, but like everything else, Christine, it's a matter of degree. Let me give you another survey, which was done by YouGov on behalf of Eurotrack. Now, that was a much better survey, in my view, because it was more specific. And it said, asked about the, the sexual harassment employed with the four most frequently experienced forms, including someone commenting on your attractiveness directly to you, being wolf-whistled at, someone looking at your breast and someone winking at you. Now, that came back with 52% of British women saying that something like that had happened to them. So, you know, I, I get what you're saying, but I think there's a danger here that, that men will start to feel put upon that men will start to feel as if they can't talk to women, they'll start to feel as though they are somehow being painted as the enemy, that they're being painted as this ghastly uh, group of individuals, which which many men are not, and an awful lot of men are not, and certainly I'm not. Um, and, and if I knew anybody that was, I would be having a very stern word with them. You know, I also know an awful lot of decent men who do not treat women like that. Yeah, I was married to one who did not treat women like that. Um, I have a lot of friends who do not treat women like that. But... We need them as well to help us in this. Sure. We need those reasonable men, reasonable men, you know, like yourself, to help us, to support us in this. And you know that it's not acceptable. Most men know that it's not acceptable. And it's not that we're saying, or certainly I'm not saying, you know, men are all misogynists or men are all guilty of harassment. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is that we need to do something about it and we need your help. Yes. No, and I agree. And I agree. To, I agree to, with to all of that. Well. But I'm just not certain that with an uncertain law, for example, I mean, you know, there are lots of men who complain to me about uh, mm -hmm. their rights to see their own children. They, they get mistreated by the court yeah. systems. It's very difficult for a lot of men who get divorced to get access to their kids. They get painted as, as, as manipulators. They get painted as misogynists. And I think that, you know, if, if, a, if a woman wishes to prevent her former husband from seeing her kids, all she has to say is, I think he's a misogynist and there's a law now that will prevent him from doing anything. No, no, the, the, the thing is... We... <laughs> We have to um, protect women who are victims of violence, and of a lot of that is misogynistic. Now, this is where, if you like, the reporting is, a, is important because it's not going to mean that you can just say that person's a misogynist and therefore they will be. There will be recording of crimes, there will be recording of incidents, there will be recording of assaults, and that is the key, that we have to have the data, we have to look at it carefully, we have to, it has to be recorded. But what, will that do, it, but what will that do, Christine, for the prevention of crimes? Because if you're going to rape somebody, it doesn't really matter whether you are termed a misogynist. It's pretty obvious that you are, isn't it? Well, that's where we come to the attitudes in society. We have to, by changing the law, make it absolutely clear that misogynistic behaviour is unacceptable. Um as is violence against men, I, don't get me wrong, violence of all sorts is completely wrong. But misogynistic behaviour is not acceptable. And we begin to change it. We've come a long way in this country. We haven't, we're not um, perfect when it comes to um, incidents of racism. We're far from it. We still have a problem we have to deal with in this country. But we began to deal with it because we recognised it. Um, and misogyny and racism are two different things. But, um, it's a problem that we have to deal with and we have to recognise it. We have to start to change society's attitudes. 
to misogyny and the way that we, we are trying with other problems mm. as well. Yes. And I think this law, if it passes, if it's part of the domestic abuse bill, will start to change attitudes, will make people think about it. And if police are recording it, then... You know, there are people whose behaviour will be influenced by that if they know the police are going to record it. So I think we have to well, accept this. I mean, may, maybe. We have to move on. Maybe it will uh, have an effect on the lower level type stuff, maybe. But it, but it, but it certainly won't. I don't think have any effect on people who beat up their wives or their girlfriends or who go around sexually assaulting women because they they're already they're already knowing that they're committing a crime, but they're doing it anyway. The domestic abuse bill. This piece of um, legislation, which was in the Lords, and we'll now come back to the Commons for this, it was brought to Parliament originally by Theresa May, and it's taken four years. And it has been a very, very difficult piece of legislation. I'm actually, I've actually moved, moved briefs. I'm no longer our um, Women and Equality spokesperson. I'm our Treasury spokesperson, but I stayed with this bill because... I feel it's so important for exactly the reasons that you talked about. And that's why it's been an example of when the House works together. Party lines haven't really mattered in this. I signed this amendment originally when it came forward with Stella Creasy from the Labour Party. Lots of my colleagues in Lib Dem do. And there, there, there were supporters on the, on the Conservative benches. A lot of the amendments and the measures in this bill are completely cross-party. Because we recognise what you're saying, there are very serious crimes and we have to deal with them properly. So this bill is an attempt to um, to get to grips with something which is a horrific scourge in our society. The number of, of people who face domestic violence and other sorts of abuse on a daily basis, and it's been heightened by the pandemic. Other parts of the bill I would have liked to see improved? Yes, it doesn't, for example, recognise the Istanbul Convention. We need more to help migrant women. But by having misogyny, hopefully, included in it, we begin to break down one of the really big problems in this country. And as a society, I think it's absolutely vital that we deal with this problem. And it destroys people's lives. And we can't go on allowing that to happen. OK. Christine, thanks very much indeed. Christine Jardin, Lib Dem MP for Edinburgh West. You may have a view on this. I'm sure you do, because I'm not sure uh, that making misogyny separately listed as a crime, as a hate crime specifically, is actually going to make any difference whatsoever. It might even confuse the issue for me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Alf Mehmet, who's chairman of Migration Watch. Story in the front page of the Times today. Asylum seekers could be sent abroad under plans to deter migrants from coming here illegally. Alf, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you, sir. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, I've heard some crazy old schemes from Priti Patel over the over the course of the last year or so, but this one takes the biscuit, I think. I mean, what makes her think that anybody in Gibraltar is going to want a load of illegal immigrants turning up? Uh, well, they've obviously been looking into it. And can I just first say that if it's true, and this is really going to happen, and that we're not going to accept applications from people who've crossed the channel or come in illegally. I think that's terrific news. Yes. And it's the first serious attempt to do something about this, frankly. Mm. Um, where they're going to be held while that happens, I don't know. Uh, but there's a long way to go, frankly, before we get to this stage anyway. I, I think Priti Patel has got to persuade her cabinet colleagues. She's also got to persuade parliament she's also got to resist the uh, asylum lobby and uh, the immigration industry if yeah. i can put it that way right so there's a long way to go but if it's true and we are really going to do something about 
refusing to take applications from those who are in this country illegally, that's great. It is great. And I I would share that uh, sentiment with you, Alp. The problem for me is that every single thing that Priti Patel has attempted to do here doesn't seem to have worked. I mean, they tell us at the Home Office that they've stopped a lot more people coming uh, now than, than they used to. However, there's still people coming on a daily basis, as, as, as we know. Um, as long as the weather's OK, they're going to keep coming. And it's got nothing yeah. to do with Brexit. It's got nothing to do with the border force being better at uh, dealing with it. They seem to come here because they know if they reach the shores of this country, they'll be taken off the dinghy, they'll be put into a hotel or some kind of accommodation, and they will be looked after. And they will probably find it very, very difficult to be moved. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. I mean, you, you, as ever, you speak a lot of sense, Mike. Um, thank you for that. Mm. There aren't many people doing it in. <laughs> there aren't, I'm in, afraid. In, no. in the the airwaves at the moment, but the fact is that it hasn't stopped. People haven't stopped crossing in dinghies. Uh, they haven't stopped coming in the backs of lorries, frankly, and a lot more at the moment are coming in in the backs of lorries Mm. and are even crossing the channel. And you're absolutely right. What we've got to do is remove the incentive from uh, the, uh, not not just the the dinghy crossers, the the people who are coming in dinghies, but from the traffickers as well. At the moment, they're making a great deal of money by simply getting people into this country by putting them on a boat on the other side of the channel. Mm. That's all they need to do. So, of course, they're going to continue come, coming. And, and that's what the message that we've got to send out. We've got to say this won't work. So far, everything we have done has not sent that message at all. It's sent the opposite message that it does work. Mm. And that's what we've got to stop. Yes, and also no doubt that people traffickers will tell these people coming over that don't worry, uh, when you get to uh, the UK, get yourself a decent lawyer um, and there'll be plenty of people there who will pay for it, uh, that basically you'll never be thrown out. And even if you get to the point where people are being deported, uh, you get taken off a plane at the final hour because your lawyer makes another last-ditch appeal. Yeah, Uh, well, there's a huge amount of abuse and that's not just Pretty Patel who's been saying it, but even... And Lord Chief Justices have said in in the past that there is a great deal of abuse and asylum is used as a device, frankly, Mm. to delay departure, to delay returns. And that, too, has got to be tackled. So far, all that's happening is that numbers are going up. The the cost of this is absolutely astronomical. Mm. It's costing us a billion pounds a year just to deal with uh, the asylum issue that's not good enough that's not acceptable and it's not what people want and it's something that the government really has got to get serious about if Priti Patel intends to do that I say well done Priti keep up the work however um, we still remain to see the fruits of whatever measures Uh, you propose at the moment and whether it will happen or not remains to be seen. Yes, you're absolutely right, Alp. Very much agree with you. Thank you very much indeed. Alp Mehmet there, Chairman of Migration Watch, also speaking common sense because this is the home of common sense, the world headquarters of it indeed. Uh, We'll take your views on this as well. I think Alp's right. If she is going to do something and this is going to actually work, then great. But I'm not so sure that it will. 0344 499 1000. I think they've got to change the whole status of asylum seekers to stop people coming here uh, who are not entitled to be here because they are not legal migrants. It's that simple. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Helen Dale. Helen, hello, how are you? Good morning, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. So much to talk about today, really. But uh, I guess we should begin with the conversation. I don't know if you heard it. I had with Christine Jardine. This idea of misogyny as a hate crime. I'm troubled by how they're going to define it. I'm troubled by how it's going to be sort of endorsed, uh, where the police are going to draw the lines, because it's always very difficult, I think, to to give the sort of, uh, the, the I suppose, the, the, the proof element to the person who's the victim. So if the victim perceives themselves to have been racially abused, you've committed a racist crime. If the person perceives themselves to have been the victim of misogyny, you're a misogynist. Well, this is the basis of the 
uh, hate crime operational guidance and the problem of uh, perception-based policing, which yeah. a number of police officers have difficulties with because it places the police in a very difficult position. But there's actually a more serious and simpler problem with enacting more laws of whatever sort uh, to deal with the fallout from the Sarah Everard case. And I don't wish to discuss the case, obviously, because mm. it's sub judice, yeah. apart from the most casual references. But the fallout from that um, has revealed a large number of women in London have experienced regularly constant low level um, har harassment and bad behaviour that typically doesn't reach the threshold of, of criminality but it's still really irritating. Yeah. You know, constant um, comments on the tube and, you know, backside pinching. And the thing is, if it's only done once, you know, sexual harassment requires a course of conduct. So what this is what we're starting to hear as a result of the fallout from the, the Sarah Everard case without denying for a moment that the Sarah Everard case is obviously much more serious. Mm. And there are problems in our legal system and some of the commentators on it who struggle to draw a distinction between minor low-grade behaviour like bottom pinching and wolf whistling mm. and yahooing out of car windows and that kind of thing and something like the Sarah Everard case. Um, and introducing new hate crime statutes is an example of that because the really simple basic problem with all these laws is they must be enforced. Yeah. You know, you, they, and they, and if you're going to have them enforced, they must also be capable of enforcement. And there is a serious case to be made that pretty much all of the hate crime legislation and the analogous legislation where hate crime isn't explicitly used, but things like uh, Section 127, Subsection 1 of the Communications Act 2003, which was, for example, used against the comedian, Marcus Meekin, Count Dankula, mm. the chap who trained his pug dog to do a Nazi salute. Yeah. They didn't use hate crime legislation there because it would have been ridiculous, but they used legislation that's actually existed in that form since the 1930s mm. and was originally drafted, and you'll laugh at this because it, it really does show a generational divide, to deal with people when telephone books first became available who would ring random people up in the phone book and abuse them. Right. And the classic form of abuse was the heavy breathing down the phone line done to a woman who lived alone. Yes. So that original legislation... I, you know, I've completely to... forgotten about that. You've just reminded yes, me exactly. that, that used to be a thing. It used to be a thing. Yeah. You know, or prank calls. Yeah. I mean, the, the American horror film, you know, the calls are coming from inside the house. Yes. If you show that to modern young people now, they don't understand it because they don't get the distinction... Mm between a mobile phone and a landline yeah. and how landlines actually work. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so all of this has to be enforceable. Mm. We already know that we have serious enforcement issues with the um, le legislation that already exists. Mm. And then there are other criminological issues uh, to do with the perpetration of sex offences that people are not taking into account. And right. if you don't mind, I mean, I tweeted about it last night and you know the story because I told you privately, um, that I had BBC Big Questions in contact with me yesterday, yeah. obviously because they wanted a lawyer to talk about changes to the law, not just misogyny as a hate crime, but mm. the uh, police and policing and crime bill that's, that's just gone through and uh, how do you improve conviction rates for rape and these were the questions they were asking me which were perfectly good questions and the thing is I basically sat there and did a combination of what we discussed last week on the independent republic about recidivism and yes. rape and the characteristics of sex offenders and now basically what I'm doing now issues with enforcement issues with victimization you know who is victimized and why and the very large difference between low-grade bad behaviour that falls short of a criminal threshold, yahooing out car windows, that kind of thing, wolf whistles, catcalling, and very serious sex offences. Because one of the things that criminologists know is that the two, the perpetrators of those two sets of behaviours are different people. There's no overlap, basically. Right. But by the same token, 
there are certain kinds of minor sex offences that are indicative of a pattern of crim criminal behaviour, although criminologists are still arguing very intensely. And there was a very good piece in a little magazine called The Article. It's just called The Article. I don't know why they call themselves that. But she's a, she was a criminologist and she talked about how it used to be in criminal profiling. If you encountered someone who engaged in animal abuse or who was a flasher who exposed yeah. themselves or so on and so forth, um, you would have to pay attention to their subsequent patterns of offending because it tended to, to ramp up, mm. you know, yes. and then you could the get problem, quite serious. I mean, the problem with all of this, Helen, is it, is it, is it not? As you say, it's, it's about enforcement, but it's also about conviction as well. And in any um, sexual yes. offence, a lot of the time, you're going to have two versions of an event, aren't you? And so that's why an awful lot of rape cases, for example, don't successfully get prosecuted because there simply isn't enough evidence to prosecute them. And that's never going to change. But the worry well, for you me can make is... it a little bit better. And one of the things I suggested very provisionally, because you don't necessarily know how these things work, is that we could bring some ideas across from Roman law, particularly as the way they're used in France. Now, basically, there's this uh, one of the tests in to secure a rape conviction that the, one of the hoops that people go through is that if the perpetrator, the accused, uh, believed that the woman was consenting, the belief has to be reasonable. It can't be unreasonable mm. or he'll be convicted. Yeah. But the problem is you then finish up circling the drain and working out what's reasonable. So everybody just, it, it just, just descends into a passion dale of evidentiary, he said, she said mm. fighting. And this is a notorious experience and people who've worked in the criminal law will tell yeah. you this until the gals come home. Now, the way the French deal with it is to do an objective test of the behaviour. What does this look like to a reasonable third person? Not a reasonable woman in the position of the victim, not a reasonable man in the position of the, of the perpetrator, um, but a reasonable person looking at it externally. So they apply the same sort of reasonable person test that we're quite familiar with from the law of contract, the law of delict and mm. tort, you know, so negligence, uh, rather than the sort of subjective he said, she said test. And France does have higher conviction rates. And is, is that as a direct result of that, do you think? Because I wonder often it, whether whether you would get a different result just because you look at it differently. Some criminologists argue that it is as a result of that. Others argue that it isn't, that it's a characteristic of the way Roman law works mm. and the way its laws of evidence work. This is why you have to be very careful when you make suggestions like this, because... The two great legal families, and there are only two, are the common law system that was developed here in England, literally in England, and then the Roman law system that was developed by the ancient mm. Romans, you know, the dudes with the, the fancy crests on their hats. You know, apart from engineering and conquering people, you know, all those fancy bridges and aqueducts, they were also very good lawyers. Yeah. And no, I so get all the that. Europe but here's the, yeah, here's, so the, the, here's the question, though, I've got for you, because when I was talking to Christine Jardin, she says we must do something, right, which is often the clarion call that comes from politicians. But doing something... Uh, is sometimes worse than doing nothing if there's something that you do makes everything more complicated. And I just think that, you know, by adding another layer of, of something like calling something a hate crime as a misogynistic thing, that's not going to alter the number of uh, offences that get committed in a serious uh, sexual assault or uh, no, in a rape case. No, it's an example, it's know, an example but, but, of the politician... But what's the point of it? It's an example of the politician's syllogism. Yeah. We must do something. Here is something... Let's do that thing. Yes. And there's a lot of that flying around. And so here was me to talking to the BBC Big Questions people, going through all of this very nuanced stuff, research done by criminologists, research done by specialists in Roman law, including some really distinguished scholars up at the University of Edinburgh, you know, people like Professor Paul de Plessy, you know, that kind of thing, you know, where, you, where they, these people really try to think carefully about the consequences of dragging things across from the other great legal family, which is very different. You know, one of the Absolutely. reasons why the European Union's had so many difficulties with the vaccine rollout, for example, is partly because of the, the two, these two great legal families. They don't mesh well. And I mean, that's why Guy Verhofstadt was, wrote his piece and tweeted about how our lawyers just have gone in basically naked and have been incompetent draftsmen mm. and have not known what they're doing. But a significant part of that is because the two legal families don't mesh. Right. So, and so, so here's me so, so, so explaining all this nuanced stuff and mm. the man from BBC Big Questions is going, this is really hard, isn't it? And I'm going, yes, it is. Yeah. It's really hard. 
Well, of course it's hard. I mean, that's the point. And therefore, uh, it is not soluble or solvable by one simple word, uh, which apparently is going to record all of these uh, instruments of, of, of law and prosecution in a different way. Because as I said to her, I mean, if you're going to be sexually assaulting a woman, there's a pretty good chance that you are a misogynist. If you're going to be raping a woman, there's a pretty good chance that you are a misogynist. It doesn't have to be written down that you are one. And I just worry as well, with all of the, the way that the data is now used for everything, that it will be used as some kind of, um, you know, excuse for doing something else. Well, what you get is what you will inevitably get is prosecutions like the Count Dankula case with the, the Nazi saluting pug dog or like the Harry Miller case. The man who the, the former police officer who became a stevedore, who 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 tweeted an amusing but you could argue anti-trans tweet. He was he was taking the wee, basically mm. extracting the urine and yeah he finished and he finished up with one of these non-crime hate incidents on his record right. and the, pro the the problem i mean with marcus meekin the scottish comedian he was actually convicted but it, at but at least you there was an, a public process and it wasn't sinister right. whereas what has happened with these non-crime hate incidences of incidents of which there are thousands every year is they're really quite sinister because you don't actually know whether there's one recorded against you mm. until you do what uh, the barrister Sarah Fillimore did and she she knew to look for this but then she's a barrister you would expect this is she actually went and got an enhanced DBS check and found them on her record yeah. now this isn't a crime this is a woman who's a barrister in good standing and, who and else, a member and who, of the bar. But who else, Helen, would find that? Who else would know about that? Um, how would you discover it about someone? Well, this well, often what has happened, and this is Harry Miller's argument, what has happened is people find out that there's one of these on these rec on their records when they try to apply for a job mm. where an enhanced DBS check is necessary, and suddenly this comes up and they haven't got the job anymore. Mm. Yeah. So which, that's where which, it turns up. Which is very sinister because, as you say, it's not actually a crime, is it? No. But the thing is, because it appears on a document that has your priors on it. I mean, this is what prosecuting counsel get. I mean, you have a trial, okay, and obviously this prosecuting counsel know this kind of thing, but the, it's not shared with the jury because it's prejudicial to the. It, it, it might be probative, but it's highly prejudicial, so it's not introduced as evidence except in very limited circumstances, and that's the laws of evidence um, and procedure. But the uh, but the point is. We all have a record and the prosecuting counsel will get those records, but it's only revealed at sentence yes. if someone is convicted, the substantive content of those records. So what is effectively being done? Yes, it's at a lower level. No one's going to jail over this, but people uh, don't know that they exist. They're in, in te, it's perception-based policing, so it's intensely subjective. It's based on the alleged victim, and I have to say alleged because it's just a claim. It, there's, in well, the that's the trouble, evidence, isn't it? Because, of course, uh, uh, you know, people will want to see more convictions in rape cases, but they will also see that there can be, and have been quite often, um, allegations made which were untrue. And therefore, you know, if the assumption is that the victim perceives it to be a misogynistic crime that that will then be prosecuted as a misogynistic crime and that will or somehow, recorded as a yeah, non or and, recorded uh, as a non-crime yeah, hate incident yes. which is which is very disabling if you well, want to is. be a teacher or a well, carer exactly. well, or a exactly. police officer but but what i'm saying yeah. is it becomes a whole different ball game it becomes a much more subjective conversation rather than a judicial one and i think that's where it's going wrong uh, well what it is it is the classic politician syllogism we've mm. got this problem and we and if nothing else, the Sarah Everard case has exposed it, and that's probably a good thing, so people are aware that this is happening. Um, and then you've got all of these people trying to come up with a simple solution. And there's that very famous quotation from the American journalist H.L. Mencken, who used to say, you know, to every complex problem, there's always a simple solution, and it's always wrong. And, I mean, uh, this requires a lot more thought, a mm. lot more care, enacting more legislation, over-criminalising, which was very much how we responded to the war on terror, and it's how the Americans uh, ran the war on drugs. We've seen how these things go wrong. You know, you'd think we'd have learnt something now. You know, people have to step back, 
allow the judicial process in the case of both the trial and the inquest mm. in the Sarah Everard matter yeah. to, to, to proceed. You know, let the legal system do its work, but also have a serious and adult conversation about things that are very, very discomforting. Mm. Like, I, I and very, and also cont- very different. I mean, Sarah Everard um, has been uh, killed by somebody, right? We aren't going to say she's been murdered by somebody yet because we don't know the, the full details of the case. Yes. However, uh, you know, things like that happen uh, on a relatively rare basis, thankfully. Cressida Dick is not, ent- entirely it, right to say this, yes. Yeah, but it, what it doesn't do is reveal that we live in some kind of incredibly misogynistic society because a woman has been possibly killed by a man. That doesn't mean the same thing. No, it doesn't. And, I mean, and there are very uncomfortable conversations to be had in this area. I mean, as part of the sort of fallout from... I nuanced myself off of the BBC yesterday. I put it up on Facebook and yeah. on mine. Well, you saved yourself um, by bothering on a Sunday morning. I suspect you? so, yes. Um, I nuanced myself out of it. Mm. Uh, I was finished up, one of the people I finished up talking to was Professor Stephen Davies, the, the political historian who is mm. also a statistician. So he's very good on this kind of thing. And he just made the observation, and it's an absolutely true one. And, and it, it's also one that makes life very difficult for any sort of liberal, including classical liberals like me who are conservative, mm. which is. Criminality is a power law, and it's a power law to use Professor Davies' expression with knobs on. That means a very small number of people commit crimes, and of those criminals, 10% of the criminals commit 90% of the crimes. And there's been lots of long-term studies done on this, including one in Dunedin in New Zealand, a longitudinal study that goes back decades that shows this phenomenon to be true. Mm. You know, nobody wants to get up in public and say, well, some people have criminal tendencies. Yeah. But the thing but is, all do. the evidence we have indicates that that is the case. Yeah. You know, so And so if you are a liberal, if you believe in the presumption of innocence, if you want to fight against over-criminalisation and the police turning up and deciding to get heavy-handed with peaceful protesters and so on, and so forth you have to also have an adult conversation about in the context of over policing how much of this was caused by the coronavirus legislation which was not scrutinized and has been a mess of drafting as numerous lawyers have pointed out i mean the lockdown skeptics tried to fight the covid legislation on the basis of science v science and it, it didn't work you don't have the resources you can't outgun the state if they'd have made it on the basis of civil liberties they might have actually done some good because what has happened as a result of that coronavirus legislation is differential policing. Mm. So basically Black Lives Matter, who were violent, were under-policed, and the anti-lockdown protesters and the Sarah Everard vigil protesters were over-policed. Yes. And I think that's very obvious. Helen, I'm sorry we're out of time. We've got to go. Um, but thank you. Very interesting. Fascinating. I'm sure we'll talk more about all of this uh, next week because there's a lot to get through because we wanted to even talk to you about the nuisance uh, business as well, which we haven't got to either. <laughs> Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got lots to do in this hour and we're going to get straight to it because Quentin Letts is with us, sketch writer uh, for The Times, a man I don't think I've actually seen uh, since the times, uh, those heady times of the tent of common sense down on College Green when he used to pop in and visit us from time to time. Quentin, a very good afternoon to you. Oh, what a load of old nonsense we used to speak in that. I know. I know. But it, it did seem terribly difficult in those days to see a way out of Brexit. Now we're stuck in an even bigger sort of quandary of nightmarish proportions where, uh, as you quite rightly say, everybody keeps bloody bossing us about. It's a great book. I had a look at it last night. Uh, I'm going to hold it up for all to see how we need to stop being told what to do. I spotted this kind of um, sense that people started to get a while ago, a few years back when they started saying things like don't drink red wine, you know, don't eat cheese. You know, it's now become ridiculous isn't it and look at you mike i bet you were baby because i bet you were always a very good boy and did what nanny told you no but exactly I, uh, I think <laughs> and i think that the country's had enough of being told what to do the last year has been ghastly uh, and the last year has been more serious really than than brexit because so many people have been dying mm. but uh, the officialdom the official class the botocracy as i think you call it has been using uh, coronavirus uh, as um, a, a, an excuse to ramp up the instructions to us and telling us exactly how we should behave. And it's it's been something that's been developing for a while, mm. I think. Last year has been really bad. And so you haven't been able to have funerals, we haven't been able to have weddings, we haven't been able to uh, see our families, we haven't been able to gather to protest. 
Mm. Um, we've also not been able to do less important things like, you know, you're not, not even allowed to kiss your girlfriend in the park uh, if you have a girlfriend. Yes. Uh, you and, certainly uh, can't go I, and find one in the park now, thanks to the new laws on misogyny. That's actually, yeah, that's quite, a, that's quite a bad problem. I mean, just awful things have been going on. There's been something developing for a while, and it goes to things like um, political correctness, the cancel culture as well, of people trying to impose their views on the public in a way that wouldn't have happened before. And so, for instance, on diet, governments now and officialdom and the boss class sort of wags its fingers at people and says, you mustn't eat four pies or um, you mustn't have too many biscuits a day and you've got to eat five bits of fruit or veg a day, which is making us all into terrible flatulent cartels. <laughs> And uh, at the same time, uh, they are imposing a sort of moral value to some of this as well. So you're a good person if you eat five fruit and veg a day. You're not just going to be healthy. You're going to be a good person. Mm. You're going to go to heaven if you have all those guacamole uh, dishes a day. And I think it's. I think people have had enough. I mean, I've certainly had enough. Well, I think, I, I think you're absolutely right, because it has extended into all areas. I mean, I was looking at some of the ridiculous sort of laws and rules that we've got now. For example, you can't have a party uh, with 30 people unless you're dead. When you die, you can have a funeral for 30 people, so all your friends and relatives can come around and see you, but you'll be dead, so you can't really enjoy it. I spoke to a guy just recently in Porth Call who said that his five-mile radius of places where he could go uh, included the sea because he lives 200 yards from the beach. And so he says, I'd have to get a boat in order to exercise my sort of right to get five miles away. You know, and, we've, and so many people are kind of accepting of it, though. So many people that I know are kind of going, oh, we quite like the rules. Yeah, and that's disappointing and it's surprising. I'm not sure it's going to last. No. Uh, and I think people are, I think, I think obedience is fraying, as you saw a bit the other day with that peace vigil. Uh, and yes. also, as you saw uh, in Glasgow with, with the fans, the Rangers fans gathering outside mm. there. But this also goes to things such as when you go to a National Trust property, not allowed just to enjoy the place for its Battenberg site, its lovely gardens. You have to be told off. They're going to tell you off, Mike, about slavery yes, or about right. gay rights or things yeah. that or, all these things that you've done, which you ought to be sorry about. And I don't know, I just think it's reached the point where we need to push back a bit and say to people, no, stop bloody bossing me about Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. I'm very happy to see, by the way, that you've had a go at the sainted Sir David Attenborough because he's one of my targets frequently because he's now turned into this old bore who just bangs on and on about <laughs> how the climate is changing and we're all going to die unless we do something about it. And I mean, I think it's really time that he, he just went into retirement, isn't it? I've only given him a very light feathering. <laughs> um... I think happens with him is that um, people are using him. I think people are using him the way that they use Greta Thunberg as well yeah. to try to push forward their own agendas. Uh, uh, and it's reaching the point where, you know, we used to be, we used to like David Asper on telly because he would tell us about the chimps or something like that. Mm. Now it, there's a whole sort of moral halo around him that, uh, that sort of, uh, you, you can't enjoy him for his television work. You have to see him first and foremost as, as a secular saint. And, and I think that's a pity for him, and it's really irritating for us. Yes, I think anyone who's not a musician uh, who's invited to do a gig at Glastonbury should be immediately shunned by the rest of the public because clearly uh, they're on the wrong side of the <laughs> argument. <laughs> Oh, it's Corbyn's great moment. Come on, I loved all that. Now, listen, I'm, I'm also I'm also very impressed that your dog, because I'm a great dog lover, I've got one myself. Uh, your dog has written oh, yeah. a forward uh, in which you've you've just sort of invoked the spirit uh, of of that amazing uh, dog Fenton that we all remember. Fenton, yes, you remember that there? That, I that do. Facebook clip of Fenton running a muck. <laughs> I was always a great supporter of Fenton. Yes. If your if your listeners haven't heard. Don't remember, Fenton was the dog in Richmond Park that slipped off its, its owners uh, out of its owner's control and ran off after a whole uh, load of um, uh, deer and caused them to stampede across the road. Right. And I was always cheering on Fenton. I thought, add a boy, Fenton. And my dog, Flip, who's down here below uh, on the floor at the moment, listening to this, it's her first um, uh, venture into the written word. And uh, yeah, she's very kindly written the foreword. And uh, she's very much on Fenton's side, too. And the funniest thing about Fenton. Fenton was originally a guide dog. Yes. And uh, so therefore had been seen as a very tame, obedient creature. And really inside Fenton's instinct was this raw disobedience and a desire to go chasing deer. 
Attaboy. Yes, absolutely right. I think we can all learn a lot from that. I know you've got to run, Quentin. Let me just ask you one more question about um, Dominic Cummings, who's also one of those who you mention as a kind of uh, uh, a nudger in one way or another of our behaviour. He appeared yesterday in what can only be described as a sort of, it seemed like a real life version of the thick of it as he was sitting there uh, answering questions <laughs> from these terribly impertinent MPs. Yeah, he was using all, all this jargon, uh, sort of uh, California stuff. But actually, right. I quite like I quite like bits of um, bits of him because he, he gives a bit of what for to mm. uh, the, the civil servants and the Mandarin class. And I don't think they get nearly enough punishment. So uh, I thought Dominic Cummings did all right. No, indeed. In fact, funnily enough, when he was when he was asked about it, Matt Hancock, you could tell, was very pleased that Dominic Cummings was no longer part of the team. And he, he was at great pains to point out that we were all now a team and everybody was a team player. And he was very happy that it was a team that was doing very well, i.e. Dominic Cummings was not a team player and we were well shot of him. I was always a very bad team player. Me not too. Me too. Absolutely <laughs> right. Well, listen, it's a delightful book uh, available, I'm assuming, from all uh, decent bookshops when they reopen as non-essential items. Um, and of course, Amazon and online and all that sort of thing. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike, and uh, 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 you know, all the strength to you. No problem at all, Quentin. We'll see you hopefully on the other side uh, when we reopen the tent of common sense or whatever we do, uh, or we see you back in the building, uh, because uh, this is a, a great book, by the way. Uh, and it's right up our street here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, because we do need to stop people bossing us around. That is the problem, is it not? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.